This is Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 5. Uh, today's episode, we're going to head to another smith, the silversmith. So, counting them all in town and village, good and, or, and indifferent, I would say about 500 silversmiths worked in the colonies between 1634 and 1776. A few of them advertised themselves as goldsmiths, but this was largely swank. The English Goldsmiths Company had charge of assaying both gold and silver, and its members worked in both metals. American silversmiths made a little gold jewelry, but also sold some they imported. In the north, these men did a thriving business, not only in large towns, but also in country centers. One Rhode Island village almost supported four of them at the same time. The southern tobacco planters and rice growers selling in England also bought silver there. So southern silversmiths found themselves limited to repairs and to making small things like spoons ladles, and snuff boxes. The northerners succeeded, not only because their customers liked beautiful things, but because the customers had no place to keep money when they got any. The best of the locksmith's strong boxes offered doubtful security. Money stolen was money gone. You couldn't identify it, but you could identify a silver tray with your cipher engraved on it. So, when the shipowner, the merchant, or even the craftsman accumulated enough silver coin to trouble his sleep, he had the silversmith turn it into plate. This doesn't mean that the piece was plated. Plate then was solid coin silver, and what the customer got was his own metal wrought into a new shape. Little of this money was British crowns and shillings. It was Spanish dollars, for instance, of pieces of eight, and pistrines, or pesos, each marked with a cross, and, <laughs> and Dutch, which meant dog dollars, the name jeering, at the odd-looking heretic alliance stamped on the coins. Spanish dollars were pieces of eight because each was worth that much, or twelve and a half cents bits, also. The Americans also chopped up dollars to make quarters and bits. So many of these dollars circulated that they finally became standard U.S. currency. If Spanish gold doubloons, which was worth the equivalent then of $16, or pistoles, $4, turned up, the smith weighed the silver coin to find out if there was enough metal in it to make what the customer wanted, and also to value it. Silver money was then worth its actual weight, not like today. This was usually below standard as the result of wear and of the time-honored custom of clipping, that is, taking a little profit by scraping some silver off the edges. No American assay office existed until 1814. Assay was up to the silversmiths who kept their working metal 
at the sterling standard set by the London Guildsmiths Company in 1797. At 92.5% silver to 8.5% copper, there was little cheating involved. No piece of colonial silver has yet tested below that standard. The customer had no choice but to trust the smith. Hence, whatever his skill, a silversmith had to have a reputation for supreme security. An honest man who had grown up in a community had a good start, but he did all he could to improve his standing. He joined local clubs. He undertook increasingly responsible public duties. Bewigged and belaced, he fancifully attended church. Naturally, the one of the most important townsmen went to, and if possible, he married the daughter of a solid citizen. As a result, silversmiths enjoyed the highest social position of any artisan and some, and became quite moderately rich. However, not every one of them was a paragon of virtue. Young Abel Brule of Kenilworth, Connecticut, was an indifferent silversmith, but a fine engraver. About 1763, he used his talent to improve some five-shilling notes into five-pound notes. Paper money had been born of necessity in America in 1690. Abel was caught, jailed, branded on the forehead, branded on the forehead with a hot iron, and had his left ear cut and clipped. But because he was young, he got a short sentence. The brand went on above his hairline and the notch in his ear was a mere nick. We shall meet him again. He went his feckless way to make a notable contribution to another trade. A bit earlier than this, in the village of Little Rest, Rhode Island, the really talented silversmith Samuel Casey, hard up as a result of a disastrous fire, convened with neighbors and minted base metal into false pieces of eight silver. He first confessed, and then, by the relative, <coughs> when a relative destroyed the evidence by throwing his dyes into deep water, he recanted. A jury tried to acquit him, but the magistrates overruled the verdict and ordered Casey hanged the next morning. Casey wasn't there for the ceremony. His fellow townsmen sprung him from in the middle of the night, and he vanished from history a thing easy to do in colonial America. Much old silverware was beautiful, and all of it was quite valuable. Hence, succeeding generations held on to it even when its particular style became out of fashion or unfashionable. And when they scraped with other fine things, with what now seems like stupidity, some of the finest silver and some of the oldest is owned by churches, which were little troubled by fashion and which often were poor, were seldom bankrupt. American silver followed the English styles as fast as the silversmiths could become aware of them, usually several years after they appeared in London. Up to the restoration of Charles II in 1660, the copying was literal. 
the plain, heavy work that pleased the English Puritans also pleased their brothers here in the colonies. Except for some good Dutch work in New Amsterdam, nearly all 17th century American silver was New England silver. Later, changing styles appeared. There was also in towns further south. The Baroque silverware of King Charles was heavy stuff, too loaded with cast scrolls and cut card ornaments that made it still even heavier. Cut card was sawn from thin sheet silver in the shape of elaborate formalized foliage and applique with solder. This time, though the Americans followed, they didn't copy. They simplified the fancy work and used much less of it starting a preference for plainness that survived the 18th century and went just a little bit beyond it. In 1697, Queen Anne made her coins softer with pure silver to discourage English smiths from melting down money, but it didn't work. To keep their work strong, the smiths made it thicker and used more cash than ever before. The failure of the soft silver to hold sharp ornament forced a new bareness. This was followed in America, where the silversmiths did what some people think is the best American work ever. A plain piece had to stand or fall on its proportions and shape only. In the time of George II, about 1730, taste moved again to the fancy, this time to the free-form scrolls and shells called Rococo. These could be charming in the hands of an artist who kept an eight rein on them, but could be pretty fearsome when they got away from a lesser craftsman. The pendulum swung back and silverware became tall, severe, and light, with a classic revival that in this country followed the revolution. No American silversmith left a written account of his working methods that has been found yet. But most of them left tools which, listed in their inventories of their estates, gave sufficient indication that they worked like the Smiths of England, from whom, of course, some of them learned the trade firsthand. The first job was to get the customer's coins into workable shape by melting them into a single mass in a black lead, which was actually graphite crucible and casting the mask, mass as an ingot in a one-piece iron called a skillet. One doesn't associate silversmithing with hand-manual labor, but flattening the ingot into workable sheets took strong arms and a heavy sledge. The silversmith shaped his work by the same means the pewterer and the coppersmith used, seaming, casting, and hammering over stakes. For seaming, he cut his metal by patterns and soldered it together. Silver solder, harder than that of copper, was itself mostly silver, four parts to one part of brass. The smith applied borax flux as a paste and cooked it dry. He then placed clipped-off bits of solder along the seam and melted them to run into the joint, by holding the work over a charcoal fire, or, for a small area, by applying flame with a blowpipe. Pickling in a weak solution of sulfuric acid removed the borax, which it had been planished, 
Only an expert can detect when a soldering seam is in silver. The weaker, I'm sorry, the worker in silver did more raising and carried it further than did the pewter or even the coppersmith. Often, he formed a cup or other vessel, bottom and all, from a single disc, hammered over heads and stakes. The artisan had frequently to anneal his work. This meant holding it at a dull red heat for half a minute and then plunging it quickly into cold water. He always planished his work all over, using polishing anvils along his polish, with polished hammers. Whole pieces were seldom cast, but the smith cast parts like feet, handles, and ornaments to be soldered on. He made wood models for parts he needed frequently and cast them in sand flasks. Parts to be used only once he molded in wax, which he melted out of the mold before he poured the silver in. Even the highly finished model yielded a rough cast from sand and needed a lot of work with fine files. One thing the silversmith could do rapidly, he could stamp. He placed the flat blank for a teaspoon over a depression molded in a lead block and shaped the hollow bowl with one blow of a mallet on the other end with a heavy die. The handle could be bent to shape by hand. Often the smith reinforced and <clears throat> and at the same time decorated his hollow ware by soldering wire onto it. This wasn't necessarily round wire, though he often used that too, corded or twisted together. Two strands of it could make an attractive fillet. The smith drew his own wire. He needed only short lengths, and he made his own dies. For round wire, he drilled a series of diminishing tapered holes in a flat iron, quote, draw block. He tempered the block to hardness and mounted it behind chocks on his draw bench. He cut a narrow strip from the edge of a sheet of silver and tapered one end to enter the largest die hole, and he grasped by the jaws of iron grippers. A strap would on a drum at the far end of the bench, pulled strongly on the grippers, tightening their pinch and dragging the silver strip through the die when the journeyman turned the crossed handles on the end of the drum shaft. This rounded the metal, lengthening it, and each succeeding hole lengthened it further by decreasing its diameter. But the stretching and the squeezing hardened the silver, and after each draw, the smith had to coil his wire and anneal it. The last hole brought the wire down to the size he wanted. For wire of special shape, the silversmith filed out pairs of steel dies. Usually the upper die was flat, so as to shape the face of the wire, which could be soldered onto the body of the vessel. The lower die formed the visible profile, which was either flat to make a simple band or half round or had two or three hollows to produce ridges with spaces in between them. The two dies went into a, a swage block, which had a screw at its top to press them together. The swage block fitted behind the draw bench chocks. Only a slight squeeze was put on the dies for the first draw, but the squeeze was increased on each succeeding one until the wire came down to the proper size that was demanded.
The craftsman bent his fillet to the curve of the surface. It went on and cut it to fit the circumference of the piece in question. When the contract surfaces cleaned and fluxed and the fillet held in place with clips of bent iron wire, the smith distributed solder along the contact line and melted to it to make a run. So, mention was made earlier of the chasing and engraving as ways of decorating silver. Engraved ornament was especially important on later American silver. Earlier, though, it was chiefly a means of marking the piece for the owner, though these marks elaborately intertwined initials or of coats of arms like that on a, on a coney teapot, or they could be only ornamental. An engraver works with an angle-pointed tool called a burin, resting its mushroom-shaped handle on the palm of his hand and pushing the point away from him to cut lines in the silver or, for that matter, other metals. The burin removes a little metal from the line that it makes. Chasing also makes lines on silver, but takes away no metal. The tracers are dull chisels of various sizes and blade shapes. They merely dent the metal when they are held vertically on it and are tapped lightly. A skilled worker can make continuous lines, straight or even curved, which show no evidence of the successive blows. These blows would distort the shape of a hollow vessel if it were not filled with pitch to go back up the metal and absorb the shocks. Because it was showy, many people liked the kind of embossed ornament that is called repousse. Its outline was chased on the surface first, then the pitch was melted out of the embossing and was bumped up from the inside with a snarling iron. This was a rod thin enough to vibrate when struck with a hammer and long enough to reach its turned-up break to any point inside the vessel. The name of the tool came from the noise it made when in use. With its straight end clamped in advice, the craftsman struck the rod between the vice and the work, and the vibration transferred the force of each blow directly to the silver. The raised parts of the design needed some touching up with a tracer just to finish them off. A long list of articles made by colonial silversmiths would be more tiresome than useful. Teapots, coffee pots, sugar bowls, and cream pitchers are still familiar objects to many of us who are listening to this podcast around the world. A family that owns a set of 18th century trencher salts, and the little round bold spoons to serve them is likely to put it on the table for special occasions only. But a big 17th century standing salt is likely to stay on the sideboard if it isn't locked up in storage, for it's, it's obviously quite so valuable. So the marrow spoons, long, slim, and usually double-ended, we just don't scoop marrow out of bones at the table anymore, do we? The half spoon <clears throat> that we talked about was a belated form. No colonial family could get along without porringers. Silver ones, if it was wealthy. Pewter ones, if it was not. 
actually wouldn't ones if they were extremely poor. A modern family finds little use for one today, other than just for as an ashtray or maybe a candy dish. A set of silver candle cups can be used to serve punch, but is highly unlikely to hold candles. A kind of stirabout made with hot wine, sugar spices, and even breadcrumbs. Boston led the silversmith, silversmithing until the Revolutionary War. But as other centers grew in wealth, they attracted and produced fine craftsmen. Joseph Richardson and Joanne Denai of Philadelphia, Jacob Bolin, Nicholas Roosevelt, and Meyer Myers of New York could all hold their own against the best in the world. Many lesser men in those towns and in smaller places did excellent work. Boston had a remarkable direct succession of silversmiths, master all the way seven years to apprentice. All of them good, and at least two of them great. Rich's store arrived by the late 1630s from London, where he had belonged to the goldsmith's company there. He took his apprentice, his half-brother John Hall, who became wealthy and served as mint master for Massachusetts in 1652. Then Hall's apprentice was Jeremiah Dummer, who was a portrait painter as well as a good silversmith, and who had, for his brother-in-law, the probability for apprentice John Cooney, often rated as America's greatest silversmith. Cooney, also a fine engraver beside a silversmith, cut the Harvard seal and the plates for America's first paper money. One apprentice of his was a French Huguenot, <coughs> Apollos de Revois. Apollos Americanized his name, as his name and apprentice said, on account the bumpkins could pronounce it easier that way. That son, don't let's, let's not us forget, Paul Revere, would have been famous as a silversmith if he had never ridden a horse in his life. Aside from his silversmithing, Paul Revere was one of America's most versatile craftsmen. He was a tinsmith. He made false teeth. He engraved pictures, not always good ones. He made gunpowder. He cast bronze bells and cannons. He engraved plates for continental money, built a press, and printed plates on it. He made jewelry, he made hardware, and even sold it. He engraved seals, he carved picture frames, and sometimes he shod horses. And he really was a fine horseman, serving as a regular courier for the Committee of Safety, a sturdy, independent, irascible man. He was a lieutenant colonel of artillery in the Revolution, but was, understandably, arrested for insubordination. He died at 83 in, 19, or in 1818. So uh, that finishes up our uh, bit here, talking about the silversmith. And uh, let's not everyone forget that we're just not doing podcast here, but you can find us on uh, Instagram, the Historic Preservationist, All One World, IGTV, which uh, our Historic Preservationist on Instagram goes into for 15-minute segments. And please look us up at our YouTube channel. Um, we're scouting over probably 100 videos right now of historic preservation. And please hit the subscribe button to like us. So, Greg Perry, 
signing out. Thanks everyone out there for listening.